0: It's good to see you this morning, it really is, this is a, it's a great day, and uh, our text this morning is actually coming from Revelation chapter 21, and I'd like to invite you to turn to it. Uh, an interesting thing happened last night, you know, I finished with my sermon and I sent out my sermon text ahead of time to everybody who'd like to read it, and, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, do people really read it, you know, when I send it out, but uh, I no more than send it out And I got all these emails back Saying, you know, pastor, pastor this was, the, this was the sermon that you preached You know, just four weeks ago And I thought, I thought I could get away with it But I couldn't <laughs> No, I had sent out the wrong one So Revelation chapter 21 uh, Verses 1 through 8 And uh, I just invite you to sort of take a deep breath, excel, get it out, good cleansing breath. Now let this fill your heart. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, well what was he going to say, what's so important and he said to me it is done, it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, we've learned a lot about that term, the Greek term in recent weeks, for the pornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer. Father, I ask you now that you would be You would be pleased to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I think this may be perhaps the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's a wedding scene. In the holy city, the new Jerusalem, it's the church, (laughs) it's us, prepared as a bride, verse 2 says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, so here in this scene what we have is we have the bride coming down out of heaven from God, and the first earth and the first heaven have now passed away. And there's no more sea, the text says. So, say, well, what does that mean, there's no more sea? That means that the sea, with all of its turmoil and its tumult, its chaotic danger and its ferocious convulsions and all of its storm-tossed waves, the sea, that sign and symbol of what is wrong with this broken and fallen world, it will be no more. There'll be no more of it. Everything is ready. Every preparation has been made. And now the bride emerges from heaven and processes down onto this amazing scene this new heavens, the new earth that are just so rich with beauty, so filled with glory. And as she comes down, God is exulting over her. He's exulting over her and he's introducing her. He's proclaiming her. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God, my dwelling place. It's with man. And he will dwell with them. That's I will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself, not God, God himself, I myself will be with them as their God. He is so delighted in this. He's announcing it. You know how in our weddings, after all the vows and everything are exchanged, the groom is given permission. You may kiss your bride. And that's an unforgettable moment. It's an unforgettable moment of reassurance as the groom takes his bride into his arms and gazes tenderly into her eyes and kisses her with great affection. It's a great affirmation. And here in our text is the counterpart in divine marriage. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. It's magic, God. The groom groom looking into the eyes of the bride. And death will be no more. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying and tears now. There'll be no more pain. All those former things are gone. We're together now. unless there be any doubt about this, that this is the case, that this is the truth. And I want to pause here for just a minute because if you and I are honest with ourselves, we naturally are prone to doubt this. I mean, we have a whole catalog of reasons why why we will not one day be part of this or fear we may not one day be part of this scene. And all that catalog of reasons honestly comes down to this one reason. We really don't believe the gospel. We really don't believe the good news of Christ as much as we say that we do. We hear and read this scene. We look on it and we say, oh, my word, this is... (laughs) It can't be. You know, it's just too good to be true. But I'll tell you that the Bible relentlessly pushes back against this unbelief with, no, no, God is too good for this not to be true. Our human experience of goodness is so limited We have no idea what good really means. All we have are approximations we see as in a mirror dimly. And I say to you this morning, never trust your unbelief. Do not bet against God. He is so good. And so back to that point, lest there be any doubt among it, the text immediately proceeds, and he who is seated on the throne. On the throne, the sovereign said, Behold, I am making all things new. <laughs> new. <laughs> it means everything works. <laughs> everything that's supposed to be polished is polished. You know, nothing is broken. Everything's in its place. It's all been beautifully prepared. I'm making all things new. And also then he immediately goes on and he says, write down these words. They are trustworthy and true. In other words, this is absolutely reliable. You can count on this. And then he says, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. And you see the shift in those verbs from I am making all things new to it is done. In other words, there's no doubt about this. There's only certainty about this. God says, I'm making all things new. Just as when Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember in John 14? And don't think for a moment that because there's this progressive, you know, present tense, I am preparing, I am making. Don't believe for a moment that the outcome is in doubt because you've not experienced it. It is done. You know, my children and their families came home to be with us. All of them came home to be with us this Christmas, which was tremendous, and... And so for that occasion, uh, Diane and I prepared for, you know, for weeks. Now, we weren't making all things new, but we were making up the beds. You know, we were setting out the toys for my grandson. We were decorating for Christmas. We hung up so many (laughs) stockings on the mantle over the fireplace, we had no more room. And, you know, in all that time, we were making all those preparations, we never thought came to us, well, you know, we're going to stop halfway, or, you know, we're, gonna, we're just going to take it all down, or we're going to reverse course, or we're going to change our minds. It never enters your mind to do that. I mean, we, you know, like you parents, our, our love for our children was propelling us, and the joy of looking forward, you know, to seeing them, I mean, that's, it didn't take any more than that. You know, our parents' love for their children mirrors God's love for us. So, you know, when he says, I am making all things new, I am, Jesus, I am preparing a place for you. I mean, it is, <laughs> with God, it is done. So he says to you, Christian, this is what he's saying in this text. He's saying to you about the what we call the consummation, about um, the end, about what we call uh, the restoration. He's saying it is done, and that means that he, that means that, that the death of death, it means the end of sin, it means the destruction of evil, uh, uh, everything's new. I mean, it's wonderfully fresh, it's, it's unmarred, it's wholesome. What did God say when he created the world before the fall? Didn't he say it was very good? All things are new. Oh, it's very, very, very good. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the end. The end. I grew up. Every movie, the end. The end. Every play. The end. You know, every book. The end. You ask people, what does the end mean to you? A lot of people will tell you, what does the end mean? What well, means death? I mean, I've had a lot to think about the end, it means my days are numbered. But I have to tell you, Christian, I'm speaking to those of you who are believers today, and I beckon those of you who are not to turn to Christ. I'm saying to you that in the Bible, the end does not mean your days are numbered. The end means these days are numbered. These days of sin and temptation and heartbreak and suffering and death, these days are numbered. Not your days are numbered. It is done. Does this not take us back even to the cross where Jesus hung and at the very last, with his very last breath, testified, It is finished? And there, are our dear Lord and our dear Savior was referring to his atoning sacrifice for sin, was he not? That he had suffered the full penalty due to us for our sins? These words, when Jesus said, it is finished, they were his his verbal seal of finality, of the irrevocable certainty of our forgiveness and of our justification before Almighty God. But now this same seal of finality, the same irrevocable certainty is placed not on your justification, but on your glorification in Christ. Those whom he justified, he glorified. That same exact seal. And yet here, this seal is not placed on an event in space and time. It is not placed on the cross. It is placed on a prophecy, a vision that God has given us of the future. Because it is just as certain as Jesus sacrifice on the cross. It is just, it is just as certain to us It is just as certain for you as Jesus' work on the cross was certain for Isaiah 700 years earlier when he prophesied the cross. It is just as certain. God's second declaration, it is done. Added to the first declaration, I'm making all things new. Well, these are all, you know, obviously they're, compacting on one another, they're becoming more emphatic in order to embolden us, to embolden us to live for Christ, to live for us, to assure us that the conflict that you and I have with sin is going to end. That conflict we know with sin, it will end. That struggle we are in is hard, but it is worth it because that struggle that we're in, that conflict that we know is what we must go through in order to reach that. Isn't that what Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress? Are we not all on our way to the celestial city? And look at what the Father says to us. Drive this application home. It's it's not an invention on the part of the the, the preacher. Look at what the Father says to us just after he says, it is done. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water. Spring of the, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, no payment. To the one who conquers, they will have this heritage. This will be their heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Now I ask you, have you, has your throat ever been so parched that you started looking for water and hoping that water is where you're headed? Or have you ever wrestled with someone grappled with someone who is strong and sort of fierce and, and relentless and you know, felt that you know, burning ache in your, in your muscles and, and so much so that you were groaning, grunting and groaning even as you, you grappled with your adversary. Well, here God is speaking of our thirst for righteousness and here God is speaking about our grappling with sin. And here he is assuring us that our longing for righteousness is not in vain. That our warring against sin, our warring against it will not be futile. And by sin, let me be very clear, by sin I am not referring primarily to the multitude of our disobediences. To all those mushrooms above the ground in the forest of our lives. I'm referring to that expansive fungus below ground that interconnects them all. I am referring to that demanding, despairing, restlessness of the soul to desire, to need, and to do evil. That is what I mean by sin. And that we know, every one of us, I've said this many times before. The Bible teaches us our human nature betrays us. That's what we're referring to. There's a conflict with that, primarily. Think with me for a moment. Let's go back for a moment to Hebrews chapter 12 because Seth was praying from Hebrews chapter 12 as he led us through our confession of sin. Think about Hebrews 12. How does it begin? Well, it began with that exhortation to set aside any encumbrance and the sin that so easily clings to us. You know, and then it continues. It says, We're to run the race before us. We are to direct our attention, we cast this aside, and we're to focus, we're to direct our attention to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, our the pioneer of our our faith. And to see in him, when we look at him, we see in him how it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He endured it. And what does the text mean when it when it tells us that? Well interesting. I wrote a longer sermon than I'm preaching. <laughs> what does he mean when he says that, when the text says that? Endure, endure. Our frame of, and the and joy set before him, the joy set before, our, our time frames are very short. We say, well, the joy set before him is resurrection. Now, the joy set before him was 40 days later at ascension. Or, or the joy set before him came like 10 days after that with Pentecost and the coming of people to Christ. I, 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 what does Jesus teach us to pray? What is chief, Jesus' chief joy? What was his chief end? How did he teach us to pray like him? That kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his joy. It's what Revelation is talking about. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the text says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle with sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You hear that? In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Look at him. Look at what he endured for the joy set before him. He endured far more than we have to endure in our conflict in our conflict with sin, in our own lives. Far, far more. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. And yet the joy set before him is our joy. It is the joy set before us as well. What a parallel. This term that's used for struggle is from the Greek word, from which we get our English word directly, antagonize. Antagonize. It's the only place in the New Testament that occurs because it's the emphatic form of the word to agonize. Antagonize is the most emphatic term for wrestling. When the text talks about struggling with sin, it refers to physical, hand-to-hand, mortal combat. It's intensified. Struggling, hand-to-hand, physical, mortal combat in which there can only be one survivor and that one survivor is going to be the victor. That one survivor is the one who's triumphant. That's what this text is talking to us about. So here is this parallel between Jesus' life and our own life, his own struggle to defeat sin and our own struggle. It's about persisting. It's not not throwing in the towel. It's about continuing. There's no time out here. There's no time out. There's no quitting. This is the race that's been laid before us. This is the fight that we're called to fight. This is our moment in our life to do this. So here's where we struggle. And here is where we conquer. And you know what it is, don't you? To grapple like this, to maintain a Godward frame of mind and a Godward frame of heart against that roiling sea of renegade impulses and toxic desires whose aim is just simply to destroy us. You know that. I know that. We all know that. That is the battle. So, when the text talks about the struggle, and it's worth the struggle, this is not the struggle of the divided mind being torn between loyalty and disloyalty uh, to Christ between loyalty to Christ and loyalty to sin. Now, this is the antagonism. This is referring to the antagonism that comes from undivided loyalty to Christ. This is talking about, the Scripture talks about, wholehearted rejection of those alien desires and motives and attitudes and choices that war against our souls, the souls Christ died to save, your souls. That's what it's talking about a relentless antagonism. And it is draining. It is draining. But look at what it leads to. Look at the result. Look at the end. To him who overcomes. I will will not be ashamed to call him my son. I will be their God. You know, one of Satan's ploys is to mislead Christians to think that grace makes this antagonism unnecessary, that it doesn't really matter how antagonistic we are towards sin. Because at the end of the day, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So really, it's good, but it's really not necessary. And what I want to say to you is that this is exactly, exactly wrong. This exactly gets it wrong. Grace does not mean that our antagonism towards sin is unnecessary. Grace means that our antagonism towards sin is not futile. It is not futile. It means that as we live as strangers and exiles on the earth, because our hearts really are set on a better homeland, God is not ashamed to be called our God, and he has prepared a city for us. Which he's the builder, and he's the maker. And it is glorious, and it is wonderful. That's what grace means. Throughout this month of January, we have, have learned a lot about pornography and what we call our mini-master. And today, Candace Wheeler's here. I see her. She's going to be teaching us more about the link between pornography and prostitution. Our mini-master on pornography is going to end today. But our antagonism... Against pornography, can't. Or we fail God. The very purpose of our ministry this month in the mini-master has been to stir up and fuel that antagonism so that our own antagonism toward pornography, wherever we're exposed to it or whatever, whenever we're tempted by it, or wherever we see it displayed in the world and its effects in the world so that our antagonism toward pornography is relentless for the joy that is set before us. Our antagonism is relentless. So brothers and sisters in Christ, fight on Fight on and be as antagonistic as you possibly can. And when that thought, just the very word, the very notion of pornography comes to you, this is the word you respond with. Antagonism. Antagonism. And let it guard your souls. The end of Jude reads this way. And it's a doxology to God. So I'd like to read it and then we'll sing a doxology as well. And because it's a doxology, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Be all for all time and now and forever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's sing together. Amen.